you don't actually have to like accept call requests. We just use them later for like when we're unemployed. We just like start going through the past guests going, do you guys know anybody that's hiring? <laughs> or wait, is that just me? Is that how you do it? <laughs> because if it's just me, I have some business to take care of before we start. Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash sendgrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 147 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel we have David Brady. Surprise! Thought you got rid of me, didn't you? James Edward Gray. And we hoped we had. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. <laughs> and this week we have a special guest and that's Michelle Titolo. Hello. Thanks for having me. You want to introduce yourself since you're new to the show? Sure. So, I'm Michelle Titolo. I am an iOS developer uh, living out in San Francisco doing it for a bunch of years now. I uh, shipped a lot of apps. I also do a bunch of other stuff. I contribute to CocoaPods, which is the Objective-C Library Dependency Manager. And I'm also CTO of Women Who Code. So wow. you can ask me anything. That's awesome. <laughs> I want to talk to you about all of those things. It's <laughs> awesome. All right, let's talk about CocoaPods. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, seriously, that's what usually happens. I'm like, I'll introduce myself. Like, these are the things that I do. And everyone's like, oh, CocoaPods. I'm like, Awesome, but there's this other stuff too. <laughs> yeah, didn't you do an episode on NS Brief? I did do an episode on NS Brief. That was on, I think that was also on APIs. <laughs> Chuck, nice. you sometimes remind me of Arsenio Hall, and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure how to take that. I used to watch his show late at night, and I was always blown away by like how he would have guests on. And he had, like, read their book or whatever. You know, he, like, he somehow knew everything about them. And I have no idea how he did all that. And you, you know, we just have guests on. And you're like, oh, yeah, weren't you on such and such? Cool. So it's the power of yeah. Google and listening to NS Brief. The power of Google. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Yep. Well, um, I invited Michelle on today because of this kind of old but still cool post that I found on how to build APIs that don't suck. So Michelle works with a lot of APIs, and maybe that's where we should begin. How come you work with a lot of APIs? So as many people know these days with mobile, you don't just make an app that's going to be on a phone that only ever deals with its own data because that's kind of silly. I mean, there are some that do that, like to-do lists and productivity things. <laughs> but for the most part, you want to be able to access your data from multiple places, and for that, it pretty much means you need a web server. So as I've made, I've released over a dozen apps to the app store in the course of my career, and every single one of them has used some sort of API. So <laughs> I've worked with a lot of different APIs, <laughs> a lot of different settings, big, giant enterprises to really, really small bootstrap startups, because the APIs are kind of like the app's lifeline. You can't really do much unless you have data. 
It also kind of helps make things multi-platform, right? If you're going to target many platforms, then you can just build the front end for each one and have exactly, that API. exactly. So you're I saying mean, that everybody should build an Open Graph API, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. One of the really interesting things about doing, I've been doing consulting for about three years, and one of the most interesting things in terms of APIs that I've seen with that is there's two scenarios um, when you're working with a new client. And one is they don't have an API. This is the most frequent one, in which case you kind of help them along and building and figuring out what they need. But two is when they have an API that was designed for something else. And I did an app that they had a backbone site that they were using on, I think, tablet at the time. So we were able to use a lot of those endpoints, though they didn't quite all work best way, but it was still something. So it's very rare to have a company that like, oh, we have a mobile API ready for you. It's usually we don't have an API or we have an API for this other thing. Can you use it? And I think we're getting to the point in technology right now where that conversation is changing. And instead it's, we need to build something new. We need to build an API first. Let's which start I with think the API. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I work for uh, a company that we often work with uh, government agencies and stuff like that. So they tend to be a little behind the curve. And, you know, we'll say, okay, we need to be able to get all your data. And they're like, yeah, just scrape our site. <laughs> <laughs> like we had something a little more sophisticated in mind, but that could work. <laughs> yeah. I've seen places that do that and you don't quite get the full experience, especially when you're dealing with stuff like authentication and, you know, customizing the app to be around the user. And don't even get me started on, like, push notifications. <laughs> you right. cannot do that with a data scraper. <laughs> right, right. That is true. I've actually built a push notification service for iPhone. So That's cool. Yeah, it's not terribly hard, but it is interesting. And it's really funny how reliant you are on the web when you're out on the, the mobile stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's something that I don't think people really thought about when, you know, the iPhone first came out. Well, not when it first came out, because those were like JavaScript apps. But once it started to get native, it took a little while for that to become really like the core of most apps experiences depend on an API. Right. And that's not even like we don't talk about mobile a lot on this show because uh, Ruby, obviously. But uh, in our area where we spend a lot of time building web applications, even there, the APIs are becoming uh, supremely more important all the time with the uh, heavy move to things like SOA architectures and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So splitting an app up into a bunch of little pieces and having them communicate with each other. And almost always that communication happens through some form of API or, I mean, I guess you could say message queues too is, is popular. But at work, we have, you know, probably like, 30 Ruby processes talking to each other all the time, and they all communicate using APIs, just sending messages to each other. So it's a big deal, I think, in, in almost any industry of computers, because, you know, there's, I actually heard someone say once, and I can't remember who, that there's no such thing as a well-factored large application, right? That once you go to a certain point, you kind of start a, you, you need to start breaking it up into pieces, right? To keep it under control. Mm-hmm. So those are 
those are all the reasons why APIs are important. So you wrote this post about how to make better APIs, because I assume you've seen some not better APIs. <laughs> You're being nice. Yeah. It says how to write APIs that don't suck. <laughs> so so it's, it's not better and not better. It's sucky and not sucky, I think. How to make yeah. APIs that won't make me tear my hair out at the... Uh... <laughs> yeah. I have a solution Basically. to that. Dave has the same solution, I think, to tearing your hair out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, we can tell from your Skype pictures. Yeah, but it involves a big razor. Our listeners don't get that joke. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can't, they can't see my shiny head. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, you had, you had four points, Michelle. Why don't you give us the first one? Okay, so the first point is conventions. So when I wrote this post, oh gosh, last year, it was after I'd done a lightning talk, so I do a lot of speaking. I try and write a blog post after I speak because my slides are pretty much just single words and they're useless. So, you know, it's been really interesting seeing how the conventions have evolved even in just a year. But even stuff like don't roll your own authentication, you use like OAuth use an HMAC signature, you know, to HTTP verbs when you're using a get, when you're using a put, when you're using a post, right. are you using deletes, even just, you know, using conventions that are already established in the world of APIs. Like if you have .json at the end of a URL, you should probably return JSON, you know, pretty good. But also establishing conventions within your own API, because I've done a lot of work with APIs that were not built as like a group of APIs that we intend to work together to be this cohesive thing. Um, I remember at one point I did a graph of, we were getting the same object back from I think three different endpoints and each endpoint had different keys. <laughs> the same oh, wow. object. <laughs> so it would be, it'd be, uh, you know, it was, I think it was like a product and one of them, the product ID, like each product obviously has an ID and one of them, it would just return ID. One of them was like product underscore ID. And I think one of them was product capital I, capital D. That's awesome. <laughs> so awesome. establish your own conventions and use them everywhere. Because then, you know, I'm not going to be hitting an endpoint from the client side expecting to get, you know, a product underscore ID. And all of a sudden I'm getting an ID. And now my app has this bug where I'm like, why is this not showing up? Why is this nil? When it's really the, you know payloads are not consistent with each other. So mm. it's conventions that everyone uses in the entire world of development. You can pick and choose those and also conventions within your own system to make sure that it makes sense. <laughs> well, so I think some of the conventions are pretty well understood, like, you know, using REST or SOAP or, you know, some of those not so. Please don't use soap. I'm just throwing it out there. The beginning of that statement that these are well understood because I've <laughs> seen them implemented well. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh, we just did a soap API at work last week. It was like stepping right back into the 1980s or something. It's <laughs> awesome. Don't do it. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is, is that they define certain specifications and conventions to follow. The thing that I run into most frequently is like you're talking about with the data structure. And there are a lot of different ways of doing things. And I, I don't really see like conventions around JSON or XML, God help us, or, <laughs> or, or whatever other, you know, format yeah. that you're getting stuff back in. And so 
It's not just the naming of the keys. I think that's a pretty obvious one. You know, if it's the same thing, it should be named the same thing. But, yeah, you know, things where it's like, do I nest? Do I not nest? Mm-hmm. In JSON, do I have a, a key at the beginning that defines a, a specific type? Um, yep. You know, things like that. And besides being consistent, are there certain approaches to that that make more sense than others to you? Or Yes and no. It's one of those things that you... There are some standards for certain things, like there's a header called a, I think it's like link header or I forget the name of it, but there's a header that you can send that passes URLs for like pagination kinds of things. Um, So there are some standards out there for common things, pagination being probably the most obvious one because everyone does it differently. But there, in, so you're, you're telling me there are HTTP headers to pass that yeah. are standard for pagination? Uh, they're not standard, but okay. they are part of the specification <laughs> for huh. HTTP. Yeah. Okay. People don't realize this. And it's not something that I remember having this debate a couple of weeks ago with some coworkers. And we couldn't figure out if we wanted to use the header or if we wanted to have the information within the response. And this is something that I've seen happen time and time again because of the way that mobile clients process the data, which is slightly different than web clients. We don't always get the full headers back by the time we're actually using the data. So, you know, if you're doing infinite scrolling is the most obvious example. Like, you know, the user scrolls, then it's a user action that eventually will trigger the request for more data. And how do you handle that? Because something needs to be keeping track of, am I on page four, am I on page five? Mm-hmm. Or if you're doing something like you request with like an offset, someone needs to be keeping track of that. So right. being able to, uh, you know, get that information, obviously the API needs to tell you where you are, mm-hmm. <laughs> but then how to communicate that information from the response that you get to the actual view controller in iOS, which is the thing that most often displays our screens. It's kind of a weird mix in MVC. Does that the one that's keeping track of what page on? Is there a separate object? Does the, you know, do you have some special data model thing that takes care of pagination? Like there's all these architectural concerns with something as simple as infinite scrolling sometimes. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, we have this joke in iOS that we frequently get one view controller to rule them all. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> well, you'll yeah. have, <laughs> we'll have this one view controller that has like, you know, Thousand, three thousand. Um, I have one friend who said she once saw a thirty thousand line view controller, um, <laughs> and awesome. we don't we don't like those. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. You're fine. We can be impressed by them, though, right? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 you see something like that, and you're like, so what's the quote from Anchorman? I'm I'm not even angry. Seriously, that's amazing. <laughs> it has to go, but I'm. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So a lot of these structures that the server is sending to our clients, like, will actually have an effect on how we architect, which is why things like conventions are so important. Because if, you know, one endpoint is sending us a link header and one endpoint is sending us a block in the JSON that has all the metadata, you know, we have to handle that differently. And now we have basically parallel implementations or one object that has to handle both things, Mm -hmm. which... It's never fun to be able to handle pagination. So it's been really interesting to see how decisions on something like an API or, and on the server side can really affect a mobile client yeah. because we're so tightly coupled in some ways. Yeah. 
Can I point so, out so, another pet peeve on this? Go for it. <laughs> HTTP has these really nice things called status codes. <laughs> no, everything gets 200. <laughs> That's right. Everything gets 200, and then you send back a JSON object. or a, Explaining yeah. the error. Right. Well, right. So so you have success, true, false, and then error, blahdy, blahdy, blah. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't have access to the logs for your app, so you'll never know what actually happened. Well, that's not true. <laughs> there are ways to do that these days, um, yeah. thankfully. Finally. <laughs> well, you can send a body back with most. I said send a body back, and I, I my brain brought up an image of a body bag anyway um <laughs> but you know you can send you can send information back besides just the status code and you know that's usually enough information for your client if your client doesn't have access to the back end to you know tell you what's wrong so it can also be really helpful if you're doing something like ajax for example and so you pull it back if everything's 200 then you have to have some special code inside of the success callback to figure out was this actually a success, you know, or something like that. Uh, Whereas if you just, you know, use a proper code, like maybe 403 forbidden or something, then, you know, that will go to the error callback and you can handle it there, you know. Yep. And we do kind of the same thing in iOS. Like there's a bunch of frameworks for making web requests because the stuff that Apple gives you is really, really raw and low level. And it works if you're doing something really simple. But as soon as you want to get to, you know, parameters, and then you want to encode it to JSON. And sometimes you have some requests where like, oh, well, you need to send URL encoding for this one request. And that's just a mess. So we have some open source things, one's called AF networking, that will automatically hit success and failure blocks, depending on the status code. So I've definitely written some code where there'd be an endpoint, comes back, it has a 200, and you're like, hold on a second, we need to check for the error key. All <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> probably okay. But yeah. Is. So it's like basically rerouting all of your API calls through like a certain funnel to make sure that, oh, well, this, you know, one API call can return just an error key. Uh, this other one will have something that's called errors. Um, <laughs> right. So even I've seen error messaging not be consistent. But it is really good to have error messages, like, because on clients, we usually display the error messages to the user, like, because we don't know what went wrong. Right, right. <laughs> you know, if the user's trying to log in and their password's incorrect, like, the server needs to tell us that because we don't know. But that's so. actually one of the arguments, I think, where status codes can be very helpful is that 401 is, like, unauthorized or something like that. So then you know it was a login problem, Right. So then you could choose to take them back to the login screen or whatever. You could make a more intelligent decision hitting, you know, the status codes with not as much work, you know, as opposed to, oh, let me just parse this arbitrary English error message or something, you know. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, With what you said on consistency on... um, when I call a, you mentioned before, a route that's got a dot .json at the end of it, then I expect my error to not be a web page. Or HTML. <laughs> you know, yeah. Right, yeah. You hit it and it's like, uh, <laughs> oh, something went wrong. Here's a web page. It's like, uh, that's not what I'm doing right now. I'm talking JSON. <laughs> yeah, no, I've actually seen some funny crashes happen because there used to be, uh, before Apple introduced their own JSON native serializer that we had to use a third party kit. And that one, there at one point was a bug where if you tried to pass HTML into it, it wouldn't 
like fail and just fail, it would crash. So that's awesome. It can be fun. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point on consistency. All right. Anything else? Or should we move to the next point? Well, actually, I have a question to, to throw out about consistency. I have, a, I have a few, actually. Simplicity often is, well, almost by definition, the enemy of optimization. <laughs> and sometimes people take simplicity to its logical conclusion, and you end up with an app that is very, 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 very slow because you have to do rest calls to query each of the thousand objects, right? And you're waiting on the wire. How do you balance that? That really comes down to optimizing. I've been a big proponent, both at companies I work with and also in some of the the talks I've given about making sure that your API provides the correct data. My philosophy is to load a screen on an app, I should have to make at most one API call. That's what I want. So... Yes. At most, um, if I don't have to use anything and it's just like, oh, I have this piece of data and I have that piece of data and I put the data together, that would be great. But usually at most, I want one API call. Um, okay. And that does usually require some special customization. So mm-hmm. it's a balance. It's do we want to make this API super, super, super customized? Um, a really good example of one that is that customized is the Instagram API. I've played around with it a little bit. And if you're doing like a search on Instagram with the API for like a tag, it will return you the data you need to essentially recreate the Instagram feed view. And that's it. That is all the data you get. And it is highly customized, but it's also highly performant. Right. I was going to say to that question, I kind of had a point I wanted to add. And there's a lot of ways to like, stand up an API now that are really easy, right? Use this, you know, Rails has kind of a structure for it, you know, to for here's how we do it. We declare resources and you get these seven routes and all that. But the problem with those is, in my opinion, is those are often a way to stand up an API that's basically a shell over your SQL database. So it reflects like how the data is stored. So like, Mm -hmm. Hit this action if you want to get a list of items. Hit this action if you want to get all the details on a specific item. And I would argue that's often a terrible way to make an API. Yes. <laughs> that, like, the API should reflect how something is used, not how something is stored. Right? And that's what Michelle was just talking about there. You know, the Instagram API, you hit the feed stuff and you get the bits you need to know to make the feed. Right? Because that's how it's used. And, and who cares what the back end looks for that looks like and how that happens. It's how that data is conveniently built. And I've run into more trouble. You know, you run into like the N plus one query API mm-hmm. problems because it's the way it's stored in the database and I have to get the list and then I have to go through and the list mm-hmm. doesn't include the description. So I have to go through to each entry and get the description of each of those mm-hmm. items and thus you know what should have been one api call turns into 11 you know a, a common thing that i see done with this is you've got a an app that's looking at like a dashboard and it's you know it's showing you all of the other users and it's showing you your recent feed items and it's showing you you know the instagram stuff from your friends and all mm-hmm. this stuff and the middleware or backend developer will not provide a resource for the da- dashboard. They'll just say, well, just query the user's controller and the Instagram, you know, just hit those seven things. And then the customer comes back and complains that the dashboard takes three minutes to load. And you know what? Just 
we need a dashboard API that will give you all of that crap, right? Yep. Right, that we give you the top level overview, right? And there's yeah. some really cool stuff you can do these days with, I've seen, I saw a talk a couple, or a blog post a couple months ago on using something like Mongo as essentially a caching layer. So there's mm-hmm. all these really cool caching things you can do to make something like that dashboard API actually be really performant. Yeah. So there's definitely ways to optimize it without having to just be like, okay, let me query Instagram. Let me query my user's feed. Let me query yeah. my user's friend's feed, blah, 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 blah. Right. That's a good point that you could introduce, you know, even if you're going to go with one of those low-level standing API up over the database, you could then put a layer on top of that that somehow intelligently organizes that, right? So the the other thing you mentioned in following conventions, you talked about, you know, if you have a, a URL that, ends in .json, it should return a JSON data and, and, and that stuff. Do you also get into, like, if you're going to have a search API call, your query should be the Q key, you know, Q equals something. Mm-hmm. Do you do you push that hard on, on convention following? Yes and no. It's one of those things that I've done a lot of search stuff because of e-commerce. Sure. And it seems that every company I've done search with has a different implementation of it. Yep. Um, simply because <laughs> they have not only searching, but like they combine it with filtering. So you're not only yeah. searching for, you know, a blue car, but you're searching for a blue car that is a 2006 to 2009 and is either a Toyota, a Honda or a Ford. Um, mm-hmm. So I've done a lot more work with things like search. That's actually a post rather than a get yeah. because it just the amount of information <laughs> that was needed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was just right. not, you know, sufficient to have in the little Q equals. Yeah. And okay. it's also much more descriptive. Yeah. I think. I mean, the Q equals, if you're just doing a plain text search of like a single term, maybe with like a offset or a page size or something. But as soon as you're getting into the kind of advanced search, which is mm-hmm. what most mobile does anyway, mm-hmm. it reaches its limitations because I mean, when I'm developing and I'm printing out the log or I'm opening something like Charles to inspect my web traffic, I would much rather not have a URL that's three lines long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd rather mm-hmm. be able to see I'm hitting the slash search with a post and these are my JSON parameters. And here's my just, payload, yeah. Because that's just easier for me to parse as a person. Okay. I think you're at a really good point there, though. You mentioned that... Um, you know, Q, we get that now. That's like, a, it's a standard thing. Like, probably even my parents see it pretty regularly because they Google, you know, yeah. and it's it's there. And we know that Q means what you searched for, your query, you know, and that's just a standard. Just like when we write a for loop, we typically call that variable that iterates over indexes I, you know, right. instead mm-hmm. of index or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just, we know what that means. But, you know, if you're doing anything more complicated than that, like you said, you know, if you have these other fields, then spell it out. You know, if it's yeah. not painfully obvious, then then spell it out. Yeah, I'm coming around to Q. I, I kind of, I hate the Q parameter on principle, uh, <laughs> on experience, and probably on personality. <laughs> and I'm coming around to it because everybody's using it, right? But he drives so. a nice car. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you ever see conventions where, how to, how to phrase this, if you have a find method or a search method and you have well, or like a get, you know, a, a method to get an instance of an object and yet an instance to put one and an instance to destroy one. That's most of a REST API at this point. You really need the update method. Do you ever see convention issues where, you know what, you've implemented two thirds of a standard collection of methods 
and you need to finish that collection or you need to not implement it that way. Do you ever, do you ever see that? All the time. <laughs> okay. Could you give All a better example than my poorly worded version? <laughs> well, one of the things about kind of using APIs that weren't designed for what I'm using them for is the fact that they're often incomplete and there will be ways to, as you say, I'm going to get a list of objects. Great. Um, mm -hmm. I can post to create a new object, but say I want to update a piece of information on one object. My biggest pet peeve whenever I'm updating an object, I hate sending the entire object. Like that's yeah. my biggest pet peeve because it's wasteful. If I need to update one key, I want to send one key. So um, you're a fan of the patch verb. I love my patches. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I, think, I think you should send the whole collection when you want to patch one. <laughs> I changed entry number seven. I know I've I've seen that before where the only update you have is mass update. Replace oh, yeah. the massive collection. Yeah. 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 Here's that a new SQL work. dump of the database. Please upload it. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. So I've seen places that, you know, don't have that update functionality simply because it wasn't there like there was no need for it yet. As APIs right. get built out in a very organic manner where it's oh, we need this thing. Oh, we need this other thing. Oh, we need that other thing. Mm -hmm. um, usually there's not someone, you know, looking down and say, oh, hey, we have three quarters of a rest call for this. Let's, fin yeah. let's, you know, finish that out. It's usually, okay, we have these three things. We're done. Let's move on to something else. Yeah. Uh, so that's, especially on companies that do a lot of agile, that's more what I'll see rather yeah. than we have a fully, you know, we have all the rest verbs for yeah. this option. And I'm torn on this one because, you know, I mean, like Yagni, right? You ain't going to need it. So I, I'm, I'm definitely against overbuilding stuff. But if you implement three quarters of something and you don't need that last quarter, maybe <laughs> don't waste money and time building that needless thing. But you should at least like put a stake, you know, a trellis basically in the code that basically says, if you need this, make sure that the vine grows this way because, you know, <laughs> don't come in and write a custom thing for this. Just come in and write the fourth method and, you're, and you'll be done. Yep. How much of that do you mark out as like comments in the code or some type of, you know, review system? And how, how much of it do you just depend on the next developer to be a grown up? Because that second thing, I'm starting to become more cynical about humanity. I'm just going to phrase it that way. <laughs> <laughs> You know, whenever I'm on a project, because I've done this so many times and I've seen going, you know, two thirds of the way through a project and then realizing that, oh, hey, this endpoint we didn't think we needed, we actually do need it. So whenever I have the pleasure of helping design the API and figure out what the needs are and how the, you know, architecture is going to be, what are the data types, yeah. I always try and make it as complete as possible because if, I mean, you're kind of skipping ahead to one of the later points in the blog post, <laughs> which is expect okay. the unexpected because yeah. you never, like, you don't know what's going to happen in the next six months or the next year. Mm -hmm. So this thing that might take a day to make now might save you three weeks of work because you don't have yes. to go through and, okay, we need to get this feature on the roadmap. We need to allocate a developer for this feature. Oh, the developer that built it, this the first time around is not available to do the work in the time that we have. Mm -hmm. So we need to get another developer who then doesn't know the code base. Right. Et that's cetera, actually, et cetera, et cetera. That's actually a really good point that, that we're, we glossed over. This is a, a, a thing that you see a lot in mobile where, okay, if we're all doing Rails and we're not doing mobile, it's all, everyone's a full stack developer and everybody knows the whole system, then yeah, leave that call out. 
because adding that call back later is easy, right? It, mm-hmm. It's, it's, you're, you're not spending a day to save three weeks. You're spending a day to waste three weeks of maintenance on something that you're not using. <laughs> but if you're writing out a middleware layer and you've, you've brought in contractors to write that middleware layer, if you're a mobile programmer and you don't do any backend work and you brought in contractors to write the backend and they're gone, finding out that you don't have something that you need is now very costly. And so that's something you should consider as like a project risk, right? And so if that was the case, I would absolutely say, I want a robust API here because I'm going to use it in a way that you don't expect. I also want to point out, and this is just one of my pet peeves, and I run into it all the time. YAGNI stands for you ain't going to need it. And what it means is if you pick a feature, you're like, oh, I should add delete because, you know, I've done these six Uh, normal actions, but they didn't Mm -hmm. ask for delete or whatever, so I should add delete. If you're doing it just to fill that out or whatever, then that is a violation of Yandy. That that means that, you know, you had no reason to suspect there was a delete needed, whatever. You filled it out just to check some checkbox or whatever. That's a Yandy problem. This is what's not a Yandy problem that I see people throw Yandy on all the time, and that's if your boss has been telling you from day one, you know, at some point we're going to have to support X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that now, but, you know, at some point, at some point, at some point, and you start architecting the code to make it easier to support X, Y, Z, that is not yet. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, you know, you you are going to need it at some point, yep. or all signs point to you are going to need it, right? And I mean... Yeah. It, so planning for it as opposed to getting to the part where you finally need XYZ and you have to rewrite mm-hmm. the entire thing because you didn't plan on that, that's terrible in my opinion. Yeah, you know? yeah. And- architecting like an interface or what Michael Feathers calls a seam in the code where you can tease the code apart at that seam and replace right. it with something, that's, yeah, if you know something's coming, definitely don't weld those two pieces together, put a seam in between them so right. that you can replace them. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and, especially, I, I'm not and it's saying, exacerbated with mobile. Yeah. Right. And I'm not saying go, you know, architecture astronaut and try to plan out yeah. the whole thing. I'm just saying, you know what, when that feature comes, it's probably going to be here. Let's go ahead and leave a hook or something, you know, yeah. like, yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Yeah. Let's go on to the second point. We've, yeah. we've, we've, I, I was about to say that. We've, <laughs> we've spent most of our time talking about one. Yeah. Well, this is, this, the, the convention one is the one that I have the most, uh, ammunition on. In fact, I actually have one more question. I'll throw it out. And then if you guys don't like it, we can just delete it from the call or you can mock me and leave it in the call. Um, always my favorite. Chuck will laugh about this because he's seen this happen because we were on the same team when we did it. This is a little bit of a, a confessional. Uh, we had an app that had to have a lot of data that did not change very often. Right. So mm-hmm. like in your e-commerce site, right, we've got to send you all of the car manufacturers, right, Ford, Chevy, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. This doesn't change very often, but it does change. And we'd yeah. like to not rebuild and recompile the entire app every time we do this. But if I force the end user to request the list of auto manufacturers at startup time, you run into this problem where the first time they access your homepage, they're waiting 
for all of like kind of the global data for the app to load. Have you seen that problem a lot and have you seen a good fix for it? I have seen that problem a lot (laughs) because the last thing that when someone downloads an app for the first time and launches it for the first time, the last thing you want is a blank screen or a spinner that's just going. Yeah. Um, Because user will close the app and never come back. So there is in 45 minutes. Well, and and Apple won't approve it if it does that. You'd be surprised what gets through. (laughs) (laughs) They're not supposed to approve it if it does. They approved the crime reports app. I'll just say that much. (laughs) (laughs) So there's there's this delicate balance. So there's this is usually tackled in two parts. Um, The first part is when you're actually getting your app ready to submit for the store. You usually do a local cache somehow. So we usually have uh, some sort of build scheme action that will, you know, hit the API, download a bunch of the data, download a bunch of the image, and then put it into the app. So when the user installs it, there's something there so that they can immediately have something that may be a week old, two weeks old, but it's something. Mm -hmm. And that happens every single time you submit to the store. So user downloads version 1.0, there's a certain set of pre-cached data version. User downloads version 1.2, there's a newer version of cached data. Mm -hmm. Um, So it gets updated as frequently as, you know, you release your app. But then you also do kind of have to do the whole, okay, there's this one set of information. We need to make sure it's updated. So we need to check for that. That is something that you just can't avoid. And this is where... Things like e-tags and, you know, cache control, uh, if modified since. That's where those headers Mm -hmm. really come to shine. Because it's a lot nicer to be able to make a request and do like an if modified since. Like if this was modified since I last opened the app, send me data. If not, tell me all is well and I can proceed. Because you still need to do that call. But if you don't get data back... And you don't have to process the data and, you know, the app doesn't have to go through and say, okay, I have these two lists of things. Let me see if they are the same. That is so much better for the user. Uh, I see what you're saying. If you don't do it with the intelligent way by checking tags and stuff, you can pull the entire list and then you've got, okay, now I have this old list. Now I have this new list and I have to reconcile all the differences. Yeah. I mean, you've you've just leveraged the inefficiencies of both (laughs) solutions, right? You've got a bigger download when you get the app. And you have to wait for the stupid list to download when you use it. Right. <laughs> yeah. So awesome. It's one of those things that you always try and think about as early as you can, because I know a lot of APIs that don't make use of those headers. And yeah. I want to see people using them more because I would much rather get no payload. Like mm-hmm. if I can send you something and it comes back with no changes, that is like the most awesome thing for the yeah. user and for the client, because then it's just, like, nothing. Yeah, you don't yeah. have to do anything. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, I said that was my last question, but I have one more. And then you can, <laughs> I promise, I promise I will shut up about about <laughs> this. Awesome. This is, so, what I'm hoping you'll tell me is that this is starting to become a well-solved problem, but I've seen this so many times. Um, this is right up there with don't get involved with the land war in Asia. And it's... <laughs> um, you're in the middle of developing a, a greenfield application. You're developing the API. You have total control over the API. And somebody says, I know, let's use XJS or let's use Angular or let's use Ember to build our front end. And somebody says, well, we're also building a mobile app for this. I know, let's use the same API to drive the JavaScript app and the mobile app. 
and this has always ended in tears and heartbreak. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm hoping that the reason why is just because we were just dumb in the way that we built our APIs. But I wanted to ask you that, like between like a, a JavaScript intensive console app or, or desktop app versus or browser app rather versus a true mobile app, is sharing really caring? Yes and no. <laughs> okay. Yes and no. It depends on how your API is built. If your API is that highly data-driven one where, you know, both clients are going to struggle equally with being like, okay, we have to make five API calls to have this one complete data set. Yeah. Um, both clients are going to have problems with that. Sharing, I haven't seen, aside from the whole getting a 200 back if you're doing like JSONP, I haven't seen as much problems with that simply because I've seen a lot of times where you're developing a JavaScript app, Ember, Backbone, whatever you want it to be. And it's usually a similar enough experience to the mobile because I know it's we've gone from the web to the mobile and then it goes back. So you have this thing where, you know, you started on desktop, you went to a mobile and you changed how your experience was for the user. And now that's being translated back. Um, if that mm -hmm. makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And then if you have those similar experiences on your native mobile and then uh, like a backbone app, your endpoints, the data that those two need to consume probably are pretty parallel. Mm -hmm. It's when you start having this thing where you have an app and, you know, the user's using stuff on the app and then they go onto the website and there's like a dashboard that's not yeah. part of the app. And that dashboard doesn't have anything customized for it. And it goes back to the whole you know, designing APIs for the experience rather than designing APIs around data. So if nice. you're designing around data, that's just going to be painful for everyone probably. Mm -hmm. But if you design APIs in terms of experiences, that can be really great for one and terrible for another. Or if you have similar enough experiences, it could actually work really nicely. That should be the motto for this entire episode is design APIs for experiences. Just yeah. so many times you see applications where the API is a really faithful model of the database. Right. And that's just like crazy. It's like Michelle said, she described it right off the bat. If you have a JSON API and a mobile API, and you're talking to one of these things where you've got to make five calls to get all the information in the collection, they're both going to suffer. Yes. Right? Like nobody wins from that. You know, yeah. it's that that's not how the data is being used. And it's the API endpoints reflect usage or experience, not storage, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the question that I, I have then is, you know, we did talk about a dashboard and, you know, so do you, do you make an API call for dashboard and have it give you back all of the uh, objects or, you know, records that, that it needs to? Or do you actually, you know, do that per widget? Because That's then, you know, question. you, you're, Typically, then, you know, you're going around the typical convention of saying, give me all the users or something like that, where that's, you know, pretty well defined by REST or whatever. I would say that's when, if you're doing something like a dashboard and you really, really want it to be highly performant and you have those data-driven APIs available, this is when something like a middle layer for caching will be your best friend because mm -hmm. you can have, you know, some caching layer that you hit that one caching, like it's like slash user dashboard or whatever. And that has all of the information about all of those other different data objects already cached. And it can go and refresh them individually. Um, so it's kind of like a two-step process where you have the underlying data-based APIs that might be used by other things, 
or you just might have been lazy and left the Rails default ones in there, for example. But then you, on top of that, you create something that is highly customized to what you're doing because that's how you can optimize for performance. One of the cool advantages about something you're talking about, like a caching layer, is the concern with adding the whole separate dashboard action is then, okay, I'm going to repeat how I do these queries and stuff. And so then, you know, then someday we change the query of how we get the users and have to remember to hit that in both places, you know, where mm-hmm. where it's being done twice, whereas this caching layer because it's just reading from the lower data layer, but then saving it in a more intelligent way for that usage, you know, it's going to be aware of changes underneath as they happen. So it's kind of cool. Exactly. I'm always a big fan of creating at least one layer of abstraction so that something can change underneath you and then it doesn't necessarily break everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I've had apps where we were in development and, you know, it was release day and new version of the API server, all that code base goes out. Um, then you open up the app and things are broken. Yeah. Let's That's talk about clever want. people. Let's talk about clever, <laughs> <laughs> clever people. Cause that actually, so <laughs> that story is exactly about someone being clever. One app that I worked on, this happened. We were in the middle of development. Thankfully it wasn't public, but server release went out. The API was being shared between mobile app and a JavaScript app. JavaScript app decided they wanted to do some optimizations. So for just one API call, they removed the HTTP from all of the image URLs. Just one API call. Hmm. So I guess what happened? Uh, you load the app, you get that, you know, call back, and none of the images were loading. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. So you, you want myapp.com <laughs> off of the file system? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Let me get that for you. <laughs> I know exactly where that is. Yeah. So that was fun. And that was just one instance of being clever. But my point about being clever is kind of what we've been talking about with the whole data-driven APIs, experience-driven APIs, but also not having things be really super complicated. Like if I need to get a piece of data, I should be able to just get that piece of data. I shouldn't have to go through the normal REST thing where like, oh, this piece of data is nested like four levels down. I shouldn't need to make four separate requests in order to get to that data because right. there's other pieces of information I need. So uh, like a classic example for me is like comments on a blog. Let's say I'm going to pull a list of comments and I'm going to display them, you know, under the article. It may be more correct, quote unquote, to have the users in a separate place, except I actually need that information to display the comment. <laughs> I need to know who it was from. I need to know their email address so I can grab their gravatar or whatever. I need that data. So just put it there. It's about experience again, right? Like Michelle says, you've got, I have to have that data to make sense of this data. So just get it to me. Yep. And this is one of the things that I've seen work differently between different platforms. So um, my last job, I made a little in, little Rails app for a little internal app that we were using and <laughs> built the iOS version. Android engineer built the Android version and we were doing caching differently. So there were some endpoints where the iOS app had that user information already because, you know, we were loading the user. We were like early, we were basically preloading users mm-hmm. because of some other things we were doing, but the Android app wasn't. <laughs> so I had to go back and nice. modify the payloads so that Android could do that. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely different ways to be clever. And yeah. probably the coolest thing I've seen is 
one of the other CocoaPods team members, uh, Florian Hanke, he has this thing called Picky, which is for searching. Um, and he redid our whole CocoaPods search API around this where you can actually pass in how deep of data that you want to get. So you can get back a list of a flat array list of ideas. Nice. You can get back, you know, an array list of like pod, like name, GitHub URL, author email, author name. So it can be highly customized and he, That's cool. and he was able to do it in a pretty performant manner. I haven't seen that done in any APIs that I've used because obviously performance things, but mm-hmm. I definitely think that stuff is really cool. And I personally would like to see that used more because, yeah. you know, I would love to be able to say, Hey, the iOS client already has the user information. So I just need an ID. And then the Android app can be like, Oh, Hey, we don't have this user information yet when we get to the screen for whatever reason. So I need the full user object. Yeah. I okay. worked on a system last year that it flies against the the don't be clever rule, but I would say the exception to don't be clever is you can be clever as long as you are solving the problem that's actually in front of you. And we we did a layered API where you would basically say, get me the, the post and all of the comments from the users, and it would get back all of the text and like the user name, and it would display out, and it would leave a space for their avatar images. And the reason we did that, we didn't didn't include avatars or any of the really heavy-duty, heavyweight data, was because it turns out that the users of this system were all on 3G networks. They were out in the middle of nowhere, like doing natural resource research. So I mean, they're they're on like like radio towers. They're on like they're lucky to get 256k downloads. And so the first hit, we would give them all of the data. And mm-hmm. they could be scrolling through things while avatars slowly came down. And they could go to a different page and just abandon the avatar download thing. If they wanted to wait for the avatars, they could. But so we did it in a layered approach where, mm-hmm. yeah, you could basically say, give me all these things, but don't give me the really big data that's just there to make it pretty. Give me the essential data and then go back and make it pretty. And it was actually, it was, it was a multiple request thing, but we did that deliberately so that we could, you know, rely on the local cache and, you know, basically get off of the wire as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah, cool. and that makes sense. Like if you have reasons to do those things. That, and that's that that that's sort of, sorry, I'm I'm really bad at having points today, aren't I? My point was you can be clever, but solve the problem in front of you. Don't solve problems that aren't in front of you. Exactly. Yeah, I had that this morning. I was pairing before I came on the show and uh, somebody had submitted a bug on the CSV library, and so we went hunting for it and figured out what it was, and it was like, oh, we can just pass this extra parameter, and, and so we passed this extra parameter, and that broke an expected interface, and so a bunch of tests began failing. It was like, oh, well, we can make that one optional, and so then we made that one optional, and then, <laughs> then it was like, okay, but when it's not there, you have to do it this way, and it's like, we did that, and my partner, you know, all the credit to my partner uh, for saying, you know, talking me off the ledge, you know, it's like, okay, we're now like three levels beyond the actual problem. <laughs> uh, yeah. Maybe we should re- go back. <laughs> it's like that gift that was going around Twitter last week of the guy who comes home and the light bulb's out. So like he goes to get a screwdriver and there's something wrong with the screwdriver. Yes. So he can't, and then he's like, okay, so I have to go to the hardware store. Um, and then he turns out there's like a problem with his car. Uh, and he's like, has to fix his car. And then the, the, the wife comes home and she's like, oh, did you notice the light bulb's out? And he's like, what do you think I'm fixing? <laughs> yeah. Because that's what happens. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Too true. 
to almost always when you just get ridiculously clever and you're thinking, this will be the greatest thing ever. And then somebody reads the API documentation and their eyes just glaze over. Yeah. I have to confess, I do really enjoy just that smooth feeling of a freshly shaved yak. (laughs) (laughs) We all do, David. That's the problem. Yeah, that's the problem. Yes. That's the problem. I need to Uh, go look up a yak calls that I can put put in a a sound, uh, what do you soundboard? (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, so documentation, which we were actually just kind of talking about in in one way. What do you have to say about documentation? Please have some. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my documentation is, this is a RESTful interface. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's not useful. (laughs) Yeah, I, I know. Not helpful at all. Especially since nobody knows what that even means. So exactly. yeah, don't start there. Especially once you get into the different flavors of rest, which there are many of, as I've seen. So my favorite type of documentation to receive is one that has an explanation of all the endpoints, explanation of all the parameters, including what type of stuff should I be sending? Should I be sending a string, date formats? Uh, are you doing true, false, or zero, one? is also a big one because JSON parsers in Objective-C will uh, automatically go to zero one most of the time. Fun story. And then things like, I would like to be able to click a button and make a request like in your documentation and also have samples. Because a lot of the times when we're going through and building up our you know responses, our models and all of that stuff, I want to just quickly go through each object and say, okay, I'm getting this key from the server for that property. I'm getting that key for that property. And I want to do all my mapping. So if I don't actually have like a response that shows me what's nested, you know, what are the different connections? What do I have to do to transform? Cause since JSON doesn't support a lot of types, things like dates, I always have to write a custom date formatter to be like, okay, so the server is sending me this kind of date format. So I need to parse that into an actual date object. Because that doesn't happen automatically. So, yes, documentation is good. And documentation that I can interact with is fantastic. I've also gotten documentation. I've gotten Postman JSON files. Like the, I don't know if you use Postman. It's a Chrome extension that lets you make web requests. But it has the feature that you could create a collection and you can save out uh, URLs, parameters, headers, all those things and export them. So that was really cool, and that's the kind of thing I would like in addition to, rather than in place of normal documentation. Right. Um, because that has the ability to like pre-fill things like authentication tokens, where you get all of your information about like how your parameters interact, what kind of headers you want. Like it can all be there, and you just literally click send, and it will make a request for you. Because most of the time, when it comes to API problems and when you're debugging, usually it can be solved with really good documentation because then I know whether to send true, false, or zero, one. Yeah. Whether I know if you're using Unix timestamps or your own custom timestamps, as well as things like, oh, I updated the server and changed this param type and I didn't update the documentation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which also happens a lot. Right. So documentation is really important because just makes everybody's lives easier. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like what you were saying about JSON, you know, having 
it has some standard types where certain things, but dates isn't one of them, right? So if you're going to take a date, then that documentation needs to clarify what your application considers a date, you know? And, you know, I, I think it's standard to use like a ISO 8601 or whatever it is, the standard date format thing. But even that is like a massive range. I mean, if you look at all the things that that accepts, Mm -hmm. Boy, it's hard, it's hard to write a string that doesn't fit that specification. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing about the way that specifically Objective-C handles dates is I literally, it's almost like a regex kind of thing where I literally have to have a hard-coded string that is a date format in order to parse it into a date, which is why whenever anyone talks about dates, I'm like, just send me a Unix timestamp, like, time yep. since the epic, please, integers. That is so much easier mm -hmm. because it's a number. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Rather than like, oh, does this format have the T in there? Is there a space there? Is it a capital Z? Yes. Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and just so we're clear, those seconds since the epic are in UTC zero. Zero. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. And a lot of these issues, you know, the, the defining uh, the type and all of that. Uh, there's other ways you can do this too. For example, we talked earlier about the HTTP link header. Mm -hmm. One of the things the link header can be used for is to define a profile. So if you have a JSON, you have payload, for example, then, you know, like we said, JSON defines the structure of your data, but it doesn't necessarily define what the individual keys and stuff mean. Uh, and that is you can attach a profile link uh, into the request and then people can look at that and bring up your documentation and that can explain what the individual parts are you're expecting. So I would call that a, a good practice to do. Yep. And another thing about documentation that's always fun is that people kind of don't think about the lifespan of APIs. So, you know, someone downloads an app on their phone today they could still be running the same version of that app in a year. Yep. Yeah, so that's true. it's it's important because you know you there's a lot of apps that get made and then they kind of go into maintenance mode so they don't really get updated that much and then someone has to go back and update the app or update the even just update the API because if you have a new developer working on like some back end stuff having that person know how this thing is used is really important. So mm -hmm. That leads me to one question. Should you be versioning your APIs then? Absolutely. And you need to plan for deprecation with version one <laughs> because it's going to happen. I actually, uh, I only updated my iPad to iOS 7 uh, about a month ago. And the only reason why I actually updated it was I started getting emails from LinkedIn because I had the LinkedIn app and they were saying they were going to be deprecating the version of the API that that app used so that the app would no longer function. And so I was like, oh, well, I should probably update my iPad anyway. And then, you know, obviously the email stopped. But they were able to tell that I was using not only an older version of the app, but that they were, like, turning off that API. And you need to tell people when you're going to do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, give some runway. Um, give some runway. Exactly. Michelle, have you worked a lot with hypermedia APIs or at all hypermedia APIs? Kind of a new resty thing. It's, a, it's yeah. actually. Yeah. I've ahead. worked with them a little bit, probably not in the really, really standard sense of the word, mm -hmm. but there are definitely some things that I like about them. 
Yeah, yeah, so I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because it's easily an episode by itself, and we should do that at one point. But I will just say a couple of quick things because it kind of plays into uh, the stuff we've just been talking about. So to give probably the worst definition ever, uh, <laughs> a hypermedia API is basically an API that treats APIs like web pages. So in a web page, you load up a web page and that page has some links on it or some forms or both. And by interacting with those links and forms, that's how you know where to go and you see something else or you submit the form and that's how you get some different kinds of data, etc. In a hypermedia API, it's the same way. You make a call to some action, it comes down and it may include links to other actions. So like we were talking about pagination earlier, you know, it may say it may have a pages thing, you know, you're on page one, if you want to go to page 10, here's the URL for that, right? It kind of guides you around the system and forms, there's different ways to uh, encode forms and stuff to uh, for what you can submit. So one of the reasons I say this is it kind of falls into the documentation category, right? It's that you pull that first request and it shows you what requests you can make, right? And it kind of helps guide you around the API. And this is kind of a powerful form of documentation in that one, it helps you explore, but also two, it can actually be a kind of documentation for the actual app, the, the client on the mobile in Michelle's case, in that, for example, say my server is overloaded right now, I'm running Twitter or something, and I'm overloaded right now, so I can't let you tweet because I'm trying to get that under control, or we have a, you know, denial of service attack going on or whatever, trying to get that under control. So if I send down the request and I just don't give you that tweet form, your application could intelligently respond to that. Like it could show you your tweets or stuff. Maybe we still are doing okay on reading, just not on writing can still show you your tweets, but because it doesn't have the form, it doesn't give you the tweet button, right? And then you won't be tweeting right now because the application was able to use the documentation as well as the developer, right? And so that's kind of a, it's kind of a, an interesting way to think about some of these problems and, and very powerful and, and worth looking into. I, w I won't say there's not trade-offs, like obviously if you have to make a request and then find out where you're going to go and then you have to follow that link, that can be really significant if you're on a mobile, especially in a situation like David described where, um, you know, you're at a limited bandwidth or something. It can be hard to have uh, the resources to make the extra requests and stuff. But so there is, you know, trade-offs like anything in programming. But another reason I brought it up is that generally the hypermedia way of thinking is don't version your APIs. And they, they have some reasons for that. There are certain rules you can follow on the client, and then if the server obeys those rules when they introduce changes, it is actually possible to introduce changes in a non-breaking way. And like I said, it's complicated. We probably shouldn't go into all of that, but I'm just saying there's other ways to think about these things, and, and Hypermedia is kind of interesting on some of these points. So if nothing else, it's something that people should look into. And just one comment from a mobile perspective on why I would like to see more hypermedia is because we always have to hard code URLs. Like that's just kind of how you make requests is you have a string and you need to, to, you know, compose the string with all the different parameters. And so something like hypermedia where you are given a URL 
for, you know, getting the user, for example. I personally much prefer that because then I can just have a user object and then have that user object keep track of whatever its URL is. So anytime I want to update the user, I just use that property that is given to me to do that instead of having to worry about, okay, here's myapp.com slash v1 slash users slash blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It just, and then you can, as long as the payload doesn't change, you can update that. You can do performance optimizations. You can switch servers. You can do everything as long as, you know, where you get that. Like as long as you have the one place where you can get that URL, that's mm-hmm. consistent. Yeah, that's what you're saying is really powerful from the server end too, because like, you know, say users get extracted out into their own service for like performance reasons or whatever, that URL can just point somewhere else, you know, and then now you have the new thing. Yep. And it helps with versioning and deprecation of APIs because then if the payload doesn't change and the only thing different between version one and version two essentially is the fact that it's now a different service, like the app doesn't care. That doesn't care where it gets its data from as long as it's in the correct format. That's right. Right. You're not changing the shape of the payload, but you're changing the content of what the API returns. So technically, you haven't changed the version of the API, right? I mean, you've changed what the API has in it, and it can be equivalent to an API change in the other style, but ultimately, your payload shape is the same. Yeah. And good hypermedia clients follow certain rules. Like, one of the rules is ignore anything you don't understand. Yeah. Um, so that if you add something to, you know, the list of things you can do on a given page and it's scanning over that and it just doesn't understand it, it's like, oh, whatever, skip, you know, and that allows you to make changes without having to specifically version your API and, and stuff. It, and there's more to it than that. I'm definitely simplifying, but you get the idea. Yeah. Cool stuff to look into. A friend of the show, Steve Klavnik, has a great book on it called uh, designing hypermedia APIs, and I'll put a link uh, in our show notes. You should check that out. Cool. Yep. All right. Do we cover it? I think so, because we already did the fourth awesome. lesson, which was okay. expect the unexpected. Yeah. Expect, expect David Brady. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. <Yeah. laughs> People going to do dumb stuff. <laughs> Wait, are we still talking about me? Maybe. Uh, I had to ask, so that answers the question, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So should we get to the picks then? Sure. All right. James, you want to start us with picks? I can do that. I have two picks this time. First of all, we switched off of Campfire recently for uh, company chat, and we moved over to FlowDoc, which I think Avdi has mentioned on the show before. But if you are still using something like Campfire and you have not moved over to FlowDoc, you are totally missing a killer set of features. Just to hit a couple of the highlights that have been super popular with our crowd, you have this ability in FlowDoc to basically fork the chat at any point. So, like, you're just chatting along, somebody mentions something, and that kind of turns into the big running topic. You can just hit a button and follow just that stream of related messages or split those out, have two conversations at once about different things, and follow it without having to read the chat and figure out which one's going to which one. It will show you which one's going to which one because these little highlighting and stuff. Really cool stuff if you work with uh, several people. And uh, another feature that uh, one of our friends loves is they have an IRC bridge. 
So you can just connect over IRC if you like, and you're in the channel, and you still get most of the features, including that fork chat I was talking about. It pulls that off. Amazing stuff. So Flowdoc, super cool set of features and stuff. If you're still on Campfire, you really got to check it out. Uh, my other pick, just for fun, I've been playing a game called Don't Starve, uh, which I got off of Steam, and uh, I would describe it as kind of a 2D Minecraft-like thing, except crazy hard. I die all the time, and <laughs> uh, it's great and just really has you working for it, and I know the first time I, I think my record now is I've lived like 13 days, and I just wow. know, you know, the first time I, I have this long, great run, I'm going to feel like it's been a massive accomplishment in my life because I've had to work up to it incredibly well. So mm -hmm. if you enjoy a good challenge, it's a, a fun game. So those are my picks. Awesome. David, what are your picks? Uh, I just have one today, uh, typing.io. This is just a little website that is like typing lessons, but it's for programmers. So they've got a little JavaScript interface where you have to type, you know, what's on the screen and you work your way through. But the subject matter is like, you can go in and say, oh, I want to do Ruby code. And so you click on it and you it gives you the source code from Rails to type on. So you actually get to practice using the curly brackets and the, you know, the braces and the pipe symbols and, and whatnot. They've, and they've got, you know, examples or typing lessons basically in whatever, well, not whatever, but a bunch, like 10 or 15 different languages uh, that you can play with. And this is uh, really relevant for me because I just got an Ergodox keyboard. I guess that's my second pick, which is Ergodox uh, keyboards, which is a completely open source keyboard. And it's in a weird shape. It's, it's meant to be a lot more ergonomic. And it has completely ruined me for the ability to type on any keyboard, including itself. So I'm now no longer able to type at all. And so I've had to start taking typing lessons and I was very happy to find a website that would give me typing lessons in source code of languages that I use regularly. And if you give them like $5 a month, they'll let you upload your own projects to practice typing on. And the fun bit is at the end is they'll give you like a breakdown of like which fingers make the most mistakes, what keys you have the hardest time with, how likely you are to make, uh, there's, the, there's a word for it, but when you make a mistake and then you keep typing, oh, collateral errors is what they call it. When you've made a mistake but you keep typing, that like stacks a multiplier on your errors. And so it tells, it lets you know that, hey, you know what, you screw up and then you type 10 more words. Um, that's a habit you want to get out of if you're going to, you know, do the perfect practice kind of thing that uh, Katrina's taught us to do years ago or week, months ago. And um, so that's my pick uh, is typing.io. And if you want a keyboard that will absolutely be indispensable and yet make you hate it uh, and yet make you unwilling to leave it behind, uh, Ergodox is uh, just freaking amazing. So what do you mean by an open source keyboard? I'm Okay, so the keyboard that I am using, the schematics for the circuit board are freely available online. All of the keys and key switches, the, all of the electronic components, uh, they give you digi-key part numbers that you can just go order all of the parts for it, and then you can solder it all up together. You get a teensy USB controller and solder it to the board, and then they give you the source code to the firmware to turn that into a keyboard controller. And at the end of the day, you plug it into your computer and the Teensy device says, hi, I'm a keyboard. And the computer says, oh, hello, keyboard. 
and you can now type. And it's a keyboard that comes in two pieces. There's no space bar. It's like you've got a thumb cluster under each thumb and keys under each finger and by, but yeah, by open source, what I mean is the entire thing is reprogrammable and all of the hardware is freely available and readily available. There's nothing custom on it. So I have reprogrammed the firmware on it to change the key layout for myself. Uh, I've also, I broke it, I broke it, or actually it came to me missing a diode and I went to the schematics and found the diode that was missing and I soldered a new one on. So like 99% of the people listening to this are, are just horrified by this, but that 1% of you are going, that sounds so freaking cool. You need an Ergodox keyboard. Um, massdrop.com. If nobody's picked that, that's my surprise third pick. Massdrop.com. They will every three months or so, they will build and assemble these keyboards and send them out to people and they will do it for a lot cheaper than you can buy all the parts yourself for because uh, they wait until they've got like a hundred people ready to buy the keyboard and then they go to DigiKey and they say, hey, give us bulk discount pricing on this. And so I, I didn't have to etch my own circuit boards or anything like that. I just, they had circuit boards professionally printed. And so it looks You're like, ran. oh yeah, it's, it, <laughs> you know. I was going to say, do you have to like 3D print your own case and stuff? Or? Um, close. Um, <laughs> they give you image files that you can take to like a shop that does plastic cutting. And you basically say, give me, you know, just regular thin acrylic. Give me five layers of it so that it stacks up to be like half an inch thick. And in each layer, there's a different image of, you know, cross section of the keyboard for, you know, what goes on and what, what it holds together with. This pick has been a disturbing trip into David Brady's mind. Yes. <laughs> yes. What's sad is I kind of want one. I know, yeah. right? He showed it to me. I, 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 I'm not this type of person, but he showed it to me over Skype one day, and I'm like, all right, that's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I've got a couple of picks, if I can remember what they are after that. The first one I've been listening to, everybody knows I love audiobooks at this point, the last book that I read was Stand and Deliver, which is actually a Dale Carnegie training for speaking, and it was excellent. I, I really, really enjoyed it. So uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. My wife recommended a book to me as well. It's called Divergent. They're making a movie out of it here within the next week or so it comes out, I think. And uh, it was an all right book. It wasn't the best book. It's kind of a dystopian future book anyway, but... It was all right, I, and then I, I kind of enjoyed it, so I'll go ahead and pick that one as well. And then I also, I've, I've kind of taken to start cooking dinner for my family, and typically what it means is I dump a bunch of crap into a crock pot and then, you know, serve it up at the end of the day, and uh, allrecipes.com has been a terrific resource for that, so I'm going to pick that as well. And I was going to pick designing hypermedia APIs, but I think uh, James kind of beat me to that, so... <laughs> I'll skip that. And Michelle, what are your picks? So my picks are uh, much more development focused. So I already mentioned Postman. So that would that was going to be one of my picks, but we already talked about it. And then my other main pick is this thing called RAML. Uh, it's a RESTful API modeling language. So it basically lets you go through and have a YAML file that has the definitions of your API that also uses JSON schema to actually, you know, basically match your payloads. And it's something that has been around for a couple months now, and there's, like, good tooling that's starting to be built on top of it. So, like, you could have a continuous integration server that when someone pushes to the release branch, will run a suite of tests to, you know, make sure your API doesn't change, which is really useful 
because it will change. And then I have an iOS one, which is if anyone out there in uh, Ruby Rogues land is also doing iOS, there's this lovely book I've been going through on auto layout, which was introduced in iOS 6. It's a new kind of way of thinking about layouts and it's all relative and all this fun stuff. And I've been going through Erica Sedun's iOS auto layout demystified, which has been an amazing introduction to a different way of thinking about laying out your views. So that is it for me. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. We talked to Jonas Beetleman about the masonry pod, which provides a DSL over the top of, uh, of auto layout. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, go listen to that on the iFreak show. And so our next book club book is Object Design, Roles, Responsibilities, and Collaborations by Rebecca Werfs-Brock and Alan McKean. So if you haven't picked that up yet, go uh, go grab it and start reading it. And uh, we'll be talking about it here in a few months. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Michelle. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. It was a great yeah, discussion. Thank you. And, thank you. Uh, Really appreciate your your expertise and taking the time. A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rogues. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics and are an active part of the Ruby community. 